Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Husky Town. You're back with another episode in our series of Elim 11. You last heard from Lauren Nice about her, her experience with Elim 11. Today we're, we'll be talking with four-time Iditarod champion Martin Bruiser with, and his experience with Elim 11. The first part of the show, we're going to be talking about Martin as the Iditarod champion, and then we'll be transitioning into talking about the Elim 11. Hello, Martin. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, Martin, can you start off by telling us a little about yourself, where you're from, from how, you're, how you got into mushering, your family? Okay. I, um, I'm from Switzerland originally. I was born and raised in Switzerland. And when I was a young teenager, I started seeing sled dogs as a as a hobby and started helping people with the chores and started working with sled dogs all through my, throughout my school years. Um, and after after my schooling was done, I said I'm going to Alaska for a year to learn even more about sled dogs, and I have been learning more about sled dogs ever since. So that has been over well over 40 years now, and I'm still here in Alaska. And of course, I'm still now I'm now American, and I feel like I'm feel like in uh, I am American, but uh, originally I'm from Switzerland. So you operate a tour business called Happy Trails Kennel. How was the pan- <laughs> How has the pandemic affected your business this past year? Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. On a normal year, we have a tour business. So, so in 2020, we had uh, virtually no tour business whatsoever. We had literally thousands and thousands and thousands of cancellations, in part because the vast majority of our people um, come from the cruise ship. They uh, a typical a typical Alaska cruise is not only uh, some days on the ship on a cruise ship, but there's usually two or three days built in where people explore other venues in Alaska, such as Denali Park and or Adult Mushers Kennel, and and that's where most of my people normally come from, but. Since all the cruise lines did not sail this year, we had virtually zero business. You are you are finished in, uh, you are perfect in finishes in the Iditarod. You've you have finished all thirty seven races you've started. First of all, is this like normal? And <laughs> nothing, nothing about the Iditarod is normal. <laughs> um, but you are, you are correct. I have uh, persisted or uh, muddled through every single one that I started. Um, there were a couple of them I probably should have gone home. I obviously sustained some injuries throughout the throughout my career here and there, and um, there were a few of them that I probably. Should have been should have been going home, but I'm kind of of the old school belief that once you start a commitment, you see it through to the end, and um, the 
the feeling of accomplishment is much greater if you if you can push through some of the challenges that nature and or the event can throw at you. So yes, I have been like I like I tell my tourists usually I've been stupid, stubborn, or tough enough to finish everyone that I started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Second, uh, what do you contribute to being able to finish like all thirty-seven races? Well, the the finishing all the races, uh, like I said, in so many so many races, of course, there has the easy ones are easy to finish. The ones where everything goes right is uh, pretty easy and pretty pretty um, pretty fun. The tough ones, um, when things go wrong, uh, require a little bit of mindset that is somewhat unusual. And um, I have built in throughout the years and I have taught my apprentices how not to give up and that's a a, a, a whole a whole lesson in pers perseverance um, and and in in general uh, people people should reflect and think about whether they want to quit whatever they started not whether it's Iditarod or not but uh, whatever you start if you start you you obviously start something expecting to finish it, to to accomplish what you start, whether that's a school year or a calendar year or a sporting event or a business plan or whatever, you you go in it hoping hoping to succeed at the other end. Um, that's just part of the planning stages, and then the other the the next stage is to have a plan B, C, D, E, and F and uh, have alternate plans and institute those, implement those when things don't go according to plan. And, of course, there is, there is situations where people cannot, cannot um, persist or cannot keep on going. There's, there's limits to everything and everybody. And my joke, of course, is if you see bones sticking out, you can go home, meaning a, a compound fracture is such an example of of um, if you if you break something and your bone is poking out through your skin, it's just too dangerous, too difficult, uh, too risky for infections, and too painful and all that stuff. But anyway, having a plan in place, uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, when I coach my my young people how to persevere, is one of one of the number one things I tell them is uh, just take a big long nap. Go to sleep. Don't come into a checkpoint and scratch and then take a nap. Reverse that little that little scenario, come into a checkpoint. If you feel like scratching, well, why don't you take a nap first? After having taken a nap, maybe even without an alarm clock, uh, racers usually are pretty mind, pretty time conscious, but if you go to sleep with a tired mind, and you don't set your alarm clock, your body will relax. And after a few hours of sleep, and all of a sudden, the world is a totally different place. It might have warmed up a little bit, or the sun might have come out, or it got daylight, or um, the dogs had a good rest, or whatnot. Uh, so just the, the idea of, of my perse perseverance is to buy myself time to feel a little better after situation. Uh, another another piece of advice I give people is, again, it doesn't really matter what three 
three uh, phone calls you make, call your mother, call your friend, and the number three person is call me. Uh, knowing full well I'm, I'm very, very hard to get a hold of in the middle of the Adirat. But the point is not that you talk to me. The point is that I'm buying time by giving you some of those, some of those skeleton uh, bullets to how to behave when when you feel like quitting anyway. So don't quit unless you have talked to those three people that you put on the list. And and again, trying to get a hold of me during I did run is almost impossible. So that means I'm buying time for you to to think about it and to rest up and to maybe come up with a with an alternate plan. We call it the no scratch routine, uh, which is when you're when you're preparing for events. You obviously talk about success, but you also talk about failure and challenges. How to overcome when things are not going according to plan. That's that's really good advice. Um, all, all all thirty seven I did our odds. Which one would you say was your toughest? Well, there's two that stand out um, for for almost similar reasons. The 1991 storm uh, was a very, very challenging storm. Um, long time ago, your kids, of course, are not even, uh, you, know, you were not even uh, around. And then the 2014 storm uh, was less less far away for for your thinking and i have some analysis with the from the 2014 iditarod um i call it the hunger game race uh, and i think a lot of your kids probably know about the hunger games and the 2014 iditarod started with no snow or very very little snow and it was a very challenging very difficult dangerous and and really really hard crossing up and over the Alaska range. It's not it's not atypical for an Iditarod to throw a challenge or two at you like that. But in the 2014, that one challenge led to another, and then that one led to another. So uh, as I was descending uh, the Alaska range, I twisted my ankle, uh, tore some ligaments. I had a, a broken finger. Um so it was like the game makers were looking down at us and saying, oh, you guys are still moving. Well, let's, uh, you, ha- you dealt with no snow. Let's uh, give you some glare ice and no snow. And most of us kept on going. A lot of people were dropping out, but we kept on going. And uh, a couple of days later, the game makers would look down and say, oh, you're still moving. There's no snow. There's glare ice. Uh, How about we throw a little bit of darkness into this equation? How about we throw a little minus uh, 30, 30 degree temperatures in this equation? It kept getting more and more difficult all the way to the to the finish line where a uh, big raging storm stymied a whole bunch of us uh, for the last 70 miles between White Mountain and Nome to the point where the eventual winner, and that speaks for itself, the eventual winner that was on course to win his unprecedented fifth championship pulled out of the race 20 miles from the finish. So the 2014 Iditarod was actually the impetus of um, because of it did impact me, 
not only physically but mentally as well. Uh, after after an event, you need to decompress, and you talk about it. It's a uh, you probably heard the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and and a lot of mushers undergo that. And I certainly did, and so I had to write or talk about it, and that was actually the beginning of my me writing the, the book uh, that ended up being titled Dog Man uh, to help me get over those situations. Along with your perfect streak, you are also a four-time Iditarod champion. There are only five other people to win four Iditarods and only one person that won five. What does it feel like to be among these this elite group of men and women? Well, it's such a it's a small group, you know, only I think only twenty three people have ever won the Iditarod. So uh, it's an eclectic group of uh, people that have obviously very much in common, but are also totally different from each other. Um, in order to win the Iditarod, you have to know a lot about a lot of little things. And that, to me, that's what the challenge is. To me, it's not only knowing about my dogs, knowing about my sled, Knowing about the weather and equipment and uh, friction and runners and competition and lack of sleep, it's the it's the big picture. Uh, having to know quite a bit about a lot of things in order to come out at the at the end of the race in first place that's uh, that's quite challenging and um, it uh, it feels great to have accomplished that, um, but I'm I try to. I try to be hung up on my dogs, not so much on, on the accomplishments, because I I feel if I do right by my dogs, if I have happy, outgoing, friendly dogs, they uh, they don't really care whether they came in first or thirteenth. And um, that's kind of how I how I look at it. Is uh, it's great to have been in the winner circle, and um, certainly certainly helps from a business point of view. But it's also great to just have wonderful dogs. Since you've raced 37 Iditarods, you've been around for a while. What changes have you seen the Iditarod go through over these years? Great question. Um, I typically turn that around and tell people that everything has changed. If you can, if you can perceive it or imagine it, everything has changed. And everything has changed for the better, I believe. Um, and there's some statistics to, to bear that out. Uh, Dick Wilmarth was the first champion in the early 1970s, and it took him 21 days to win. Uh, those dogs were big, furry, hairy, trapline-type survivalist dogs that lived mostly outdoors and were they had purpose. They were they were companion dogs of people that lived in the in the wilderness and made a living uh, in part with driving sled dogs. Then the race became more and more competitive, and the time got faster and faster. And uh, I was the first to cut Dick Wilmarth's time in half, so we were finishing in 10 days. But uh, it could be done even faster, and the dogs then rewarded us with a under-nine-day finish. And that's probably about as fast as they can go with, without, a, without what I call a paradigm shift, meaning without completely different genetics or completely different diets. Um, I think their maximum 
speed and and uh, ability to cover an Iditarod is about eight and a half days now. So that's that's where we are, and and that in itself brings different ramifications. You know, it, in the old days we we had a cook pot, and whatever cook pot you had, you didn't worry about the cook pot. But now, if your cook pot is not out of titanium or an aluminum alloy, somebody has a lighter one. So. So now the trickle-down effect is not only better dogs, faster dogs, happier dogs, longer-legged dogs, but every piece of equipment uh, is looked at from a competitive point of view. Uh, I guess a good example would be uh, the headlamps. In the early Iditarods, the mushers did not have headlamps. Then we started having miners' lanterns that had big batteries and probably weighed 10 pounds around your belt. And... um, then we got uh, lithium batteries, uh, and then we got krypton or xenon bulbs that had brighter brighter light. Uh, at one point, we, we'd spend at least $100 per night on batteries alone to, to illuminate the, the surroundings. Now we have gone even farther with LED lights, and now I can... I don't even spend $100 on the entire I did right now on, on batteries, but I can see farther and better at night, which is 50% of the time, of course. Um, so every piece of equipment has come a long, long way in, in, evolve, in evolution. You and your dogs are movie stars now. Your dogs were in Togo, and you played a role as well. Can you talk about... Talk to us about your experience with the Disney movie Togo. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I also have a dog named Togo, and I have been, I have been running my Togo in lead lately. I have a Togo was Leonard Cepola's lead dog, and and it's now a, a, a movie uh, on on Disney streaming. And um, I named the entire litter of of my dogs after um, Leonard Seppola, the famous 1920s dog musher. I named a whole litter of dogs uh, after his former lead dogs, and, and they are doing really good. I, I took them to Nome for the first time last year, Togo and Sukan and Fox and Rusty and um, Kavik. Uh, and those are those are my, my Seppola dogs. But the, the movie came about that Disney had asked me to be not only a, 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 a I guess it's called a movie double or a stand-in for the actor who is um, Willem Dafoe, but also an advisor of making sure that things were correct, period correct. And um, so I I moved to Canada. the The movie was filmed in Alberta for for about almost six months. My wife and I took a bunch of dogs down there that were not in the movie. They were just my sled dogs that I trained for Iditara while I was working on the set with, with the movie dogs and help people uh, hopefully make a, a pretty good product. And we're, we're pretty happy it turned out uh, the way it did. Uh, there is some artistic licensing there, but the movie is pretty. Pr- it turned out pretty well, and we were happy to have been part of that. Uh, it was a, a fun working and learning experience to be in a, a totally different environment with a whole bunch of different professionals. And um, at the same time, we could still train our dogs and get ready for another Iditarod, which, of course, happened. That sounds cool. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> 
Uh, we recently interviewed Laura Nice and are trying to get a hold of all the members of the uh, Elam Eleven. Uh, you were a part. <laughs> of the, you were a part of the Elam Eleven, uh, the group that was stuck in Elam for a couple of days. Uh, as the most experienced member of the group, what was the experience like for you? Well, I tried not to. You know, I. There were a couple of situations that needed a bitter, a little bit of intervention um, to keep everybody together. The, the way it ended up starting was Elam. Elam was a pivotal point because there is two ways out of Elam, maybe three, but there's two ways out of Elam on a, on a normal year, and one way is you go, you go along the coast where where the trail typically is in the winter time. However, if you have a southern storm, a storm that comes from the south, often that trail gets washed out, meaning. Basically, there's a high tide that obliterates the, the trail, meaning it brings in two or three feet of water, which, of course, is impossible for the dogs to, to get through uh, safely. Because the weather had been good all season, there was no trail out the back. They call it the old mail trail. Um, so there, there was so much snow that year, this year, that the dogs couldn't break out. Uh, the 40 miles of trail that it was going to be to get to Gollum. So we had to rely not only on the Iditarod personnel, but on the local people. And the way it turned out is um, I think there was six of us in Elam and the trail breakers showed up and they said, we're going to, we're going to help you get to Gollum. And I put on my thinking cap and I said, and what about the five people that are coming from, from uh, Koyuk? Well, we'll deal with them later. We'll, and I knew full well right then and there that those five people were going to be scratched from the race. And, and I didn't think that was going to be the right thing to do for, for their effort. In part, I'd known, I had known some of the people that were in the back there, of course. But also, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do for their effort that because of no, none of their um, doing, they, they would not be able to continue on the race. So I, I kind of got a little assertive and said, well, we should, we should give those back five people the same chance that the six people that are in Elam right now are having uh, to benefit from snow machines as well as uh, trail breakers that local, the local people know where to go. So we decided to wait for everybody and, and incorporate what now became the Elam 11. And then it took a couple of tries to make it out of, out of that town simply because of the depth of snow and the challenging conditions. There were little, there's a little snowstorm going on and wind and blowing snow obliterating the trail. But we pretty much stuck together, and um, you know, as as we were camping out or even coming back to the to the fire hall in Elam, I would just share some of the some of the advice that I had gathered over the years. Clearly, clearly not not imposing any of my my uh, experience, but um, having ha having somebody with a lot of a lot of background it certainly helped 
and and obviously everybody ended up making it to the finish. So that that felt good to have to have been part of that to to help people with a, a bit of advice and maybe a pointer here and there to um, have people make it to the finish line. As a huge inspiration to many mushers, what piece of advice would you give new mushers getting into the sport? <laughs> My first advice is always don't do it. <laughs> the, and, the reason, and the reason I say that is it's, it's such an all-encompassing lifestyle. See, it's not just a way of of doing a sporting event uh, like your fantastic teacher. She chooses to run long races. That's totally on her on her shoulders. She she I know she has a few dogs, but if you're a dog musher, you always have 10, 20, 30, 40 dogs to take care of. So not now you're not only feeding yourself, but you're you're also having to feed your animals. And it's not just for the Adira. You're feeding it. You're feeding those animals twice a day, 365 days a year. You're not gonna. You're never gonna have a day off. Uh, certainly not in your formative years until you're quote unquote become somebody when you might be able to have helpers or can hire help. Um, so it's a very very challenging lifestyle. And that's why I, I'm, I'm pretty serious when I try to talk people out of uh, taking on that, that awesome responsibility of taking care of dogs. If I don't succeed, then I try to teach you the right way. And for well over 25 years, I had a, an apprentice or two every winter, and I would not only impart the joys and uh, the responsibility of taking care of those animals, but also the the way of doing it. So it's it's a it's a big it's a big job. It's not just running dogs. It's how do you feed them? How do you make money to take care of them? How do you uh, responsibly place an old dog to a new home? Um, how do you not have puppy after puppy after puppy? Um, so. I'm trying to teach my apprentices the entire picture, the full picture of what it takes to be a modern dog musher. Up next is prediction time. We will ask, we're, we are going to ask you to make some predictions for the 2021 race. <laughs> well, we, I don't, I, Prediction as in finishing or whether the race is going to happen. You know, there's there's all kinds of uh, worries, of course. People wonder whether the race is going to happen or not. And uh, I'm pretty sure there is going to be a 2021 I did a run. I'm pretty sure we're going to be camping out a lot. Maybe some checkpoints don't even want the mushers to come in, which is fine. I've camped out a lot before. Um, uh, Competition-wise, of course, I... I kind of don't see myself being in the top five anymore. So if you have been in the top five many times, it doesn't really matter whether you're in the top 20 either. So I'm going to just try to keep having fun. Knowing full well, there is a bunch of guys there and ladies, uh, half my age with lots of experience and the, the desire to win their first or third or Fifth, I did, or whoever it might be, and uh, I'll have a I'll have a fun time watching it evolve. 
What do you think about Rookie of the Year? Rookie of the Year is a is kind of a an honorable position that sometimes goes to the wrong person. It it should only go to a, a person that has never done a thousand mile race. Uh, we've had years where people have done many Yukon Quest races. That's another you probably know another long distance event, and then have become Rookie of the Year. That's really not. Um, what what it should be but most years the rookie of the year is simply a person that that finishes the Iditarod in uh in as good a position as he or she can for the first time ever so it's usually a person that that uh might have a good career ahead of themselves but has never has never been in the limelight before so it's a it's a fun it's a fun accomplishment, and you only you only have one shot at it. You only have one chance of becoming a rookie of the year, obviously. Oh, uh, any ideas on uh, most improved? Uh, say again, please. Do you uh, do you have any ideas on uh, like the like who would be the most improved? Uh, no, I don't know, but I could become the most improved. <laughs> Except it's, the most improved is a numbers. It's usually a numbers game. As you know, there is so many uh, awards in in there. There's the sportsmanship award. There is the most improved. There is the inspiration, the most inspirational award, and all those awards. Um, some of them are mathematical. Some of them are simply uh, voted on by the by the competitors and or by the veterinarians. Uh, so there's a myriad of awards. Most improved uh, on a the reason I'm I'm hedging is because I did or I'd only had um, had such a few a few people finish you know this year in the so I think the most improved goes back if I'm not if I'm Maybe it goes back to to all the years. So if a person has not run a couple of years and was in the 60th position, you know, two or three years ago, and now she's in 10th, maybe that's that could be the most improved. But you talked about Laura. She she finished kind of far back. Um, she might become the most improved if she has a if she has a race that goes goes her way and puts a good race plan together. So that that uh, that award is simply mathematical. How about who do you think will be the Iditarod champion? <laughs> I have no idea. There is so many, there is so many great mushers, um, young great mushers that have and are working very, very hard trying to become Iditarod champion. I would very much like to see my friend Matt Failer become Iditarod champion, but his good friend Pete Kaiser and his good friend Richie Deal and um, their good friend Yor, they all are competing for the same the same uh, honors, of course. Then there is Ali, and then there's you know there's Laura there. The, if you have sixty people in the race, thirty probably have a small chance of winning. Uh, 10 or 15 have a realistic chance of winning. So, um, and if you say 15, you're going to get beat by the 16th person. So, the, having done so many races, I realize how things can go right or wrong uh, just at the drop of a hat. It's very, very difficult to make those predictions. Last question. What is your favorite song? 
my favorite song. I don't know if I have a favorite song. I'm kind of like a I'm kind of like a dog, I guess. I enjoy when the music is playing, and I I guess the older I get, the more I listen to country music. Um, but I have a good array of um, music on my various various electronic devices. Also, um, li listen to books on tape. I enjoy that very much. They help me stay awake and focused somewhat. Um, but I, I don't know if I have a particular favorite song. Thank you so much for talking with us, Martin. Good luck and make it a perfect 38th this year. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's that's definitely the number one goal plan nowadays is to finish another race and not to interrupt that streak. Thank you very much, you guys. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. Yep. Have a nice day. You too, you guys. Thank you very much. Special thanks to our guest, Martin Bruiser, for being on the show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please stop by iTunes and leave us a review. It helps start ratings. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people who you would like to hear on the show, email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If we hear from you or you leave a review, we'll read, we'll read it on the show. We would also like to give credit to Hobo Jim for our theme song, the Iditarod Trail song. And now enjoy a clip from Martin's favorite song. Slip on that.